you're listening to KHOL. This is Jackson Unpacked, our weekly podcast on news, music, and culture in Jackson Hole and the Mountain West. I'm reporter Will Walkie. Coming up on today's show are five stories from our partners at the Rocky Mountain Community Radio Collaborative. Stay tuned for a feature on backcountry flying, which is experiencing skyrocketing popularity in rural Utah communities. We really want to get in on this backcountry thing. You know, what do we have to do to put an airstrip in our county? And I'm like, well, there's actually 40 already, (laughs) and they're widely used. Plus, advocates are urging Congress to extend the free school lunch programs that began during the pandemic. Since the September 2020 announcement by the USDA to allow free school meals for all students, we have seen many positive impacts. But first, thousands of people came out to two separate rallies in Denver this week in support of reproductive rights. The demonstrations came in response to a leaked draft opinion from the Supreme Court that could overturn the landmark Roe v. Wade decision that previously established abortion as a constitutional right. Alexis Kenyon from KGNU in Boulder, Colorado, reports from the Centennial State Capitol. Pro-choice rallies were held elsewhere in the state yesterday, including in front of the courthouse in Boulder. They were a quickly organized reaction to a leaked draft opinion that would undo federal abortion protections. Attorney Kiki Council says she was at a conference in Orlando when she first heard about the leak. I can't tell you how offensive and indignifying it is as a black queer attorney to read words written by a white man comparing the Roe v. Wade decision to Plessy v. Ferguson. For those of you that didn't go to law school or those who did and didn't pay attention in con law, Plessy v. Ferguson is the separate but equal education case. You know what's separate but equal? The state of abortion law in America. That's what's separate but equal. The fact that not every American citizen can wake up in the morning and say, I want an abortion. Oops, can't. I'm in Texas. I got to travel a thousand miles to Denver, Colorado to get my essential health care. That's separate but equal. Multiple states have passed state-level restrictions on the right to an abortion. One of the most severe restrictions went into effect in Texas. Abortion providers in Colorado have already seen a surge in patients coming from other states. Adrian Monsonares is president and CEO of Planned Parenthood in the Rocky Mountains. So I'm going to thank my colleagues who not only worked a full day today with walk-ins, with people traveling hundreds of miles for abortion care, People coming in with children, because most of our patients seeking abortion care are already parents. They are ready to give to the kids that they have. They want to build up their families. They want to finish college. They want control of their own bodies, and they don't want to be followed from Texas with a price tag on their head. And that's what this is. Reproductive right advocates and others who feel threatened by the implications of the language contained within the draft opinion say... They plan to keep up pressure, including with a rally in Longmont Saturday. For KGNU, I'm Alexis Kenyon. The town of Gunnison in southwestern Colorado has adopted a new sustainability plan. Jesse Metzger from KBUT in Crested Butte has the details. Gunnison Cares 2030 sets benchmarks to cut citywide greenhouse gas emissions in half by 2030. CARE stands for Climate Action, Resiliency, and Environmental Sustainability. Shannon Hessler and Jenny Nitsky are graduate students in the Master's of Environmental Management program at Western and wrote the plan. 
Hessler says having local plans in places like Gunnison is vital to addressing climate change. Local governments are where we have to do this kind of work. There's so much fluctuation on a federal level that, you know, we're not going to reduce emissions if we wait for the federal government to do it. So local governments, grassroots programs are how we're going to do this kind of work. Hessler, Nitsky, and Gunnison City Manager Russ Forrest spent months conducting research and getting feedback from community members. Their plan aims to reduce emissions and improve on affordable housing at the same time. One of the, the issues and actions that are, that's highlighted in here is trying to get housing where employees are so there's less of a need to get in your vehicle and go to work. Um, so there is a really important interrelationship between this and the need for affordable housing and putting that affordable housing where we have jobs in the valley. The plan also lays out actions involving water consumption and waste. This includes plans for a new water treatment facility on the north side of the city. It also may lead to a single stream recycling system. For KBUT News, I'm Jesse Metzger. Backcountry flying is taking off across the country, and a small but growing number of pilots are helping to upkeep historic dirt runways that dot southeastern Utah. Justin Higginbottom from KZMU in Moab took to the skies to learn about the growing hobby. Gary Hilly's job as a mechanic keeps him focused on the ground during the week, but when he's free, he heads above southeastern Utah. There. I'm in his two-seat plane. It's called an experimental Super Cub. It's lightweight, able to take off and land with only a few hundred feet of runway. We're flying over slot canyons and mesas, heading south with Canyonlands National Park in the distance. So all these orange dots are runways around us. But we're probably gonna go um, either to Mineral or Horseshoe. His phone is open to a map with dozens of orange dots within about a 15-mile radius. Those are backcountry runways. These are from the region's mining days, mostly uranium. Miners would use them to bring in supplies or labor. Right now we're headed towards the Green River. There's around 300 backcountry runways in Utah, mostly in the southeast, and many in Bureau of Land Management areas. This is the Mineral Bottom Airstrip, which was associated with two mines, one being right here and then one further upstream of this road right there. We pass unfazed cows, some wild burrows that look up curiously, and a couple antelope trying to race us but no humans, which is the point, says Hilly. Backcountry flying is a great way to get away from the crowds quickly. I use way less fuel flying there than I do driving there. And I can get out there and do a hike and get back in four or five hours, you know. Hilly is one of a growing number of backcountry flyers taking lightweight fixed-wing aircraft into the wilderness. Here's Roy Evans. He's a commercial pilot and president of the Utah Backcountry Pilots Association. The general aviation industry has expanded purely just in this world because the kind of airplanes that people fly into the backcountry, those markets have been exploding for the last 10, 20 years. He says there's new options for lightweight planes and training. This type of flying has been around for a long time, shown by these miners' runways. And in Alaska, it's some residents-only option but social media has helped introduce the hobby to a new generation. He says local officials have even reached out to him for help in drawing flyers to their county. 
we really want to get in on this backcountry thing. You know, what do we have to do to put an airstrip in our county? And I'm like, well, there's actually 40 already <laughs> and they're widely used. He says his group has around 900 online members. They will share trip reports and details on the condition of remote runways. The one thing that's really interesting about flying in the backcountry is that the people you'll meet alongside these airstrips are from all over the world. We've met people from Germany that were out here flying around because America provides them so much more freedoms with aviation than other countries out there. But he says not everyone is as stoked on the hobby. Grant County commissioners submitted comments to the BLM with concerns about noise in some management areas. Evans says compared to other motorized vehicles, backcountry flying is pretty unobtrusive. The airplane only makes noise for those brief moments where it's coming into land. And then when the airplane's on the runway, we, we're shut down. We push the airplane into our parking spot. Kaya Marienfeld is with the conservation group Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance. She says as the hobby expands in the area, it could run up against other wilderness uses and values. It's just a question the same as it is with another motorized vehicle like a Jeep or a UTV or a motorbike. You're making sure that you are in the places that are the best suited for that kind of impact. Some historic runways in the San Rafael Swell were challenged after that area became a designated wilderness. And she says enforcement can be hard. Airspace is extremely hard to regulate. Land management agencies don't have a lot of sway or say over FAA regulations, over what things can and can't happen, however many feet off the ground, depending on where you are. She says there's great places where this kind of flying makes sense. But if you are a visitor or if you are wildlife out in one of these ecosystems and a plane flies overhead, it does substantially change the experience that you're having when you're out there. Back in the skies with Hilly, he tells me he tries to teach those pilots that are new to the area. And that's one of the things I try and educate a lot of pilots that come to town about, like, what's sensitive for us. But, like, guys love to fly the Green River, like, right on the water. But right now it's full of canoers and stuff. So really not a good idea. We land at the Horseshoe Canyon airstrip. The runways have stayed largely intact in the desert climate, although vegetation is very slowly encroaching and the rare flood can wash away these bits of history. Hilly spends his free time maintaining the runways. We'll come out and clear the turnarounds and the parking and the camping areas and haul the ash from the fire pits out, stuff like that. He'll haul out trash that's blown in, sometimes 50-year-old cans of beans left over from the mining days. Right now, he's using a metal rake he made himself and left out here for others to use. And we'll just, you know, you can take it and smooth out some ruts or chop some weeds or whatever you need to do. He says with the privilege of being able to access these runways, there's a responsibility to keep them safe. It's needed. He thinks the area will continue to attract more pilots. Like we're the mecca for mountain bikers, we're also the mecca for backcountry flying. And that comes with pluses and minuses, you know, with, with more people on the river every year, there's more people in the air as well, and more bikers, more razors, more of everything, and that's just, that's the reality of living in a resort town, really. But he thinks it's manageable. Today, on a windless day and peak tourist season, I didn't notice another plane. We can get everyone to kind of be respectful of each other and consider their point of view. You know, they're, they're here to have fun, we're here to have fun. So far, he thinks there's enough space for everyone, in the sky and on the ground. Justin Higginbottom for Rocky Mountain Community Radio.
you're just joining us, you're listening to Jackson Unpacked from KHOL. I'm reporter Will Walkie, and this is our weekly podcast featuring reporting and interviews on news, music, and culture in Jackson Hole in the Mountain West. New episodes of Jackson Unpacked drop every Friday on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Next, the federal government's pandemic response program to fund free school meals for all students is set to expire at the end of June. Shannon Young from KGNU in Boulder, Colorado, has more. Many school nutritionists, food policy experts, and child welfare advocates are urging the government to extend the program another year. Ashley Wheeland is the director of public policy at Hunger Free Colorado. She says the last year has shown what can happen when all children in schools have the same access to meals. The current free and reduced meal program's eligibility requirements are too low. A family of four must make under 50000 to qualify, while the costs of living in our state are up. Furthermore, the ending of these waivers will end nearly 280 summer meals locations, removing those access points to children's food over the summer. Finally, these waivers ending will be a cliff for school nutrition departments. Not only will they be without funds to feed many kids who have been counting on the meals this year, but they are facing inflation of food prices at nearly 9% and dealing with staffing shortages. Wheeland and other advocates pointed the Free School Lunch for All program as an example of a good policy coming from the pandemic. Since the September 2020 announcement, by the USDA to allow free school meals for all students, we have seen many positive impacts. Dan Sharp is Mesa County's school nutrition director and has worked on the serving lines in the school district's cafeterias. Prior to COVID, many students that were eligible for free meals did not participate in When Hungry to ensure that they were not recognized by peers as the poor kids. We see this play out every day in our school cafeterias prior to COVID. Sharp says that many of the kids benefiting from the current federal waiver program are kids and families that are struggling financially, but whose household incomes are above the threshold to qualify for the free or reduced lunch program. Las familias enfrentan retos y los altos costos en la en la renta es otro problema grande que tampoco están viendo. Denver resident and parent Gabby Medina says raising a family is always a challenge and that many are now struggling under the burden of skyrocketing rents. There's currently a bill before the state legislature known as SB 87 that would create a free school meals program for public school students. Again, hunger-free Colorado's Ashley Wheeland. That bill would create a school meals for all program in Colorado and improve how much federal reimbursement we can bring in so that it becomes more and more affordable. And we're still advocating for it at the legislature. The implementation of that because of The programs would be out a year or two, so the need for next year is very, very high. And to continue the funding next year through the Congress is is needed uh, no matter what happens with that legislation. Uh, We hope that our legislature will be able to prioritize um, continuing this indefinitely. But next year, we really need to continue it uh, so that we can take some time to build and work on the policy for permanent school meals for all. Even if the state law does pass, most funding needed to provide free school lunches comes from the federal government through the U.S. Department of Agriculture, which is why advocates are urging Congress to act before the summer. For KGNU and Rocky Mountain Community Radio, 
I'm Shannon Young in Boulder. Our last story today is a commentary-style piece from KDNK in Paonia, Colorado. Glenwood Springs voters, at least the ones who bothered to turn out, overruled a city council annexation of a property west of town. Morgan Neely breaks down the results, which were marred by controversy and nimbyism. With the Roaring Fork Valley and Greater Mountain West in a full-blown housing crisis and deepening worker shortage, Anemic voter turnout and nimbyism ultimately doomed our two partners' proposed Donegan development. The lead-up to Tuesday's election had nearly everything. Special interest groups, a citizen-driven ballot initiative, investigations of possible campaign finance violations, sneering threats directed at the mayor, but most of all, it embodied the age-old Mountain West gatekeeping conundrum. Who gets to lay claim to being here first, and who gets to be here from now on? And it was a prime example of how a determined interest group can overturn a controversial decision by their elected representatives. When Glenwood Springs City Council narrowly voted 4-3 to to annex the 16-acre parcel at their November 4th meeting, thinly veiled nativist concerns were shouted out. Objections like, quote, we got to think about who we let in, and, quote, people that aren't educated tend to commit more crimes. There was lots of talk about carrying capacity. One person in the audience called Mayor Pro Tem Charlie Willman a chicken sh- for voting for the annexation. Another said he'd be waiting for Mayor Jonathan Godis outside. The developers made repeated concessions, ultimately designating 56 rental units for affordable housing and four deed-restricted townhomes for purchase. The developers also said they would donate $100,000 to the city for a West Glenwood emergency evacuation plan, turn an acre of the site into open space and a public park, and donate an acre to the city for a new West Glenwood fire station. R2 also estimated $308,000 in impact fees from the development would go to help defray construction costs for the fire station. Ultimately, none of it was enough to sway voters. With 5,874 registered voters in Glenwood Springs, The unofficial tally shows only 2,383 ballots were cast, 40.6% turnout. That's in a city of nearly 10,000 people, three-quarters of whom are presumably adults of voting age. And remember, in Colorado, all registered voters receive ballots in the mail, so voting is remarkably easy. It's getting increasingly difficult for working people to afford housing in the Roaring Fork Valley, And without stringent government rent controls, which are obviously unlikely, one of the only available tools to bring down housing costs is to increase supply. For now, that will have to wait in Glenwood Springs. And for the West Glenwood residents who were determined to keep new neighbors out, they'll get to keep the supposed rural character of their slice of paradise, but with a side of industry. The family who's owned the Donegan parcel since the 1960s said in a statement through our two partners Tuesday night that they'll follow through on their vow to move forward on their long-held Garfield County approvals for a multi-phase industrial park. For KDNK and Rocky Mountain Community Radio, 
I'm Morgan Neely. Now for the weekly news roundup. Here are the local headlines that you might have missed this past week. Many Jackson Hole residents saw a major increase in their property tax bills this year as real estate values continued to rise. To offset that cost, the state has set aside a pot of money for a refund program for the first time since 2019. Katie Smiths is Teton County Treasurer. She says plenty of longtime locals qualify for reimbursements of up to 50% of their property tax bill. You have to um, own your home here in Teton County. You have to be a resident of Wyoming for at least the past five years. And then uh, lastly, you need to make sure that you paid your property taxes on time. Households also can't own assets worth over a certain dollar value. Smith says she's already seeing unprecedented interest from residents who are upset to see their yearly rates rise. But she reminds folks that she just collects the taxes per her job description. Most of the money set aside goes to state programs like the education system. We cannot change any of the rules, but this property tax refund program does help a lot. I mean, I talked to people on the phone, their property taxes went up 50%. That's 20% of their annual income because they're on a fixed income. I mean, that really pulls at your heartstrings. Applications for the refund program are due June 6th, and more information is available at the Teton County Treasurer's Office and website. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and since the pandemic, several human services organizations in town have seen major increases in demand for crisis-level care. Adrian Croak is Director of Education and Prevention at the Community Safety Network, which provides help for those affected by sexual assault and domestic violence. She says calls to her helpline doubled in the past two years. Also, what we saw in terms of clients seeking our supports were just all of these compounding stressors that affect us all, but add on to that victimization or healing from an abusive relationship. That's why Croak stresses the importance of prevention care or investing in mental health before things escalate to something more serious or dangerous. The Community Safety Network is partnering with Teton Youth and Family Services to jointly fundraise in early intervention methods. Croak says this can save the community money and prevent tragedy. We know that there is a strong connection between people who experience violence and trauma at a young age and either go on to enact violence on others, on themselves, or experience re-victimization, meaning they experience violence again and again as they grow up. So if we invest in prevention, we can change that. This effort comes as state funding for mental health has evaporated in the past decade. Like many organizations around the Valley, Teton County's early child care providers are struggling to keep staff. Burnout, limited housing, and low compensation are all well-documented issues in the industry. And Executive Director for the Teton Literacy Center, Laura Salto, says that's coming at a time when many kids have struggled to overcome tectonic shifts in education and health due to COVID-19. 
as we see kids come back to the classroom, whether they've been away for six months or two years for the pandemic, you know, there's a huge gap in, in the skill set and and the socialization of, of our youth. And I think we really need to be aware of that. We really need to understand what the repercussions are going to be long term if we don't find some solutions and find some, you know, amplified access for early childhood. That's why the Teton Literacy Center, Children's Learning Center, and Jackson Hole Children's Museum are launching a joint community survey that aims to find solutions to staff retention and recruiting challenges. Collectively, these three nonprofits benefit nine in 10 local children, and Salto says the goal is to get broad feedback from families about what's needed in Teton County. Then, create a systematic plan for sustainable childcare in Jackson Hole. The brief survey is available in English and Spanish and can be found at championsforchildrenjh.com. May 5th is the National Day of Awareness for Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls. More than 700 Indigenous people went missing in Wyoming in the 2010s, according to a state report. One-fifth of those victims weren't found for at least a month, and just 18% of indigenous female homicide victims received any newspaper coverage, compared to 51% of white people. Cericia Sandoval is a local educator and member of the San Felipe Pueblo tribe from New Mexico. She organized a protest at the town square last week to try and give the issues Native women face more visibility. In many ways, you think about Jackson as a place where a lot of indigenous people have been displaced from. And you can walk around the stores and you can look at the different um, galleries and there's tons of pictures of indigenous people and, you know, really focusing on the culture, but not enough attention to what indigenous people are facing today and right now. Wyoming Governor Mark Gordon created a Missing and Murdered Indigenous Persons Task Force in 2019. The goal is to hone in on the scope of the high rates of violence among Native communities and to try and come up with some solutions. That's it for today on Jackson Unpacked. Original music for the show is by the local band Strum Bucket. You can help us spread the word about Jackson Unpacked by leaving a rating and review for the show in Apple Podcasts. I'm Will Walkie, and this is KHOL Jackson. Jackson.